Welcome to the Joseph Cox Show. Let me start by saying that I am really embarrassed. Somebody ordered five copies of Grobar and the Mind Control Potion online. So why am I embarrassed? Because I republished Grobar and assumed that my stored text on my computer matched the previously published text from 2001. It didn't. The version I republished is full of typos, and I haven't fixed it because I've been pretty busy and because, well, Grobar and the Mind Control Potion hasn't actually sold a copy in a few years. So, if you're listening, whoever ordered five copies, I'm sorry, but I'll make you a deal. Send me a copy with the typos you find, and I'll order you five new copies that have been repaired. Or, if you make the changes in a words file I'll send you, then I'll order you ten new copies. Basically, help me out, and I'll try and make the mistake whole. I wish I could go through and correct the mistakes myself, but then again, I've only sold five copies of Growbar in the last few years, and I don't have enough time to do it. My newer books, From City on the Heights onwards, are in far better shape. I've written eight of them, so if you want some material from uh, book form from me, then you ought to be able to find it there. So, this episode is another Torah-focused podcast. Like last week, all structured around five faces of Torah, inspirational, political, trivial, structural, and finally, my answers to standard questions. Let's start with inspirational. Fact is, when you're looking for positive inspiration, this Torah reading is an extremely hard place to find it. After all, it is almost all doom and gloom and destruction. And to go along with the helping of darkness, this reading raises some of the most fundamental questions in all of Torah. How can Hashem rob Paro of his own free will in order to make an example of him? How can Hashem cause so many people to suffer so much just to make a point about his own power? Is Hashem really just showing his might, justifying himself through the adage that might makes right? Is that all that counts? Is Hashem just because he is totally powerful? On a first reading, that seems to be so. Even Paro believes it. After the plague of hail, he says, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and I and my people are wicked. But his understanding yields him no respite. This argument, this bowing before force, grants him no freedom from the plagues. We know from the very beginning that Hashem has a program. Everything is meant as a demonstration, and Paro, the human foil, will be forced through all the steps, no matter what he wants. So what are we to learn from this? Is it that God is right because God is powerful, and that Hashem doesn't care what we want or how we react to his plagues? Are we simply unwilling parts in his play? But if this were the case, why bother with the demonstration? Who would Hashem be demonstrating to? In the face of this God of total power and total disregard, we have the God of the burning bush. In contrast to this God of destruction, we have a God of fire without consumption, of creation without destruction. We have the God who brought the world into being and breathed his spirit into us. Where in these plagues is that God? And how can you square these two visions of Hashem, one with the other? This challenge is at the very origins of the slavery and the Exodus. Back in Parshat Lech Lecha, before the dark breach, before the dark covenant between the parts, Hashem says to Avram, I am the God who brought you out of Ur Kazdim. Ur Kazdim, by the way, literally means the destroyers of dark of light. This is an obvious issue. Avram was already in Haran 
when Hatashem told him to lechlecha, or get yourself from your land. It was Terach, his father, who left Orkazdim. And the only hint we get as to why is in this verse. And Haran, uh, Haran died in the presence of his father Terach in the land of his nativity in Urkazdim. My brother died in the presence of my father, and my parents fled the place where it happens. The implication as I see it is that Terach was driven out of Urkazdim by the death of his son. When Hashem says, I am the God who brought you out of Urkazdim to give you this land to inherit it, Hashem is saying, as I read it, I killed your brother, Avram, all so that you would inherit this land. And in response, Avram says, How can I know that I will inherit it? Avram doubts. He can't square. Perhaps even Avram can't square the God of blessing and promise with the God who took his brother. If Hashem has all the power, then who else took his brother? Hashem's reaction is the dark covenant between the parts, the covenant which Hashem promises that Avram's descendants will learn. Hashem, the same Hashem, the same God of blessing and creation and Shabbat rest, will be the one who enslaves us and then rescues us from our slavery, and not just from Egypt. That dark breed refers to furnaces and a darkness that has no other use. The word is never even used elsewhere in the Chumash, an unfathomable darkness. I think that promise is not just about Egypt, but even about the Shoah, about the Holocaust. And even after the exodus from Egypt, the same questions are raised. We aren't given a resolution on a plate. After the story of the exodus, we can have no doubt as to Hashem's power, but as the suffering enhances our fear of God, the suffering we see in the plagues that we have through slavery, it seems that it must force our love of God to recede. Fact is, Moshe faces the same challenges Avram did. He is attracted to the sned, the burning bush. He is attracted to creation without destruction. He is a good man. And so he resists Hashem's program. He resists the role he's given. He prays fervently for the plagues to be lifted. He play, prays fervently for Paro to back down. Moshe fights Hashem, perhaps more than he fights Paro. And yet, just as with Avram, Hashem chooses Moshe to be the leader of the people. If our story was just about Mike makes right, Aaron, who obeys, would be the one who was lifted up to lead. But he isn't, and so something else must be going on. I believe we can find our answer all the way back in the story of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Chava, Eve, weren't expelled because they ate the fruit. They were expelled because when Hashem accused them of it, they both passed the buck. Adam blamed Chava, and Chava blamed the snake. Then they were expelled. The God of creation made decisions, acted, judged, and created. God's very being was defined by responsibility and willfulness, by the ability to make a decision, speak, and have it be so. Mankind was meant for this. We were supposed to be in the image of God, but we never achieved it. Hashem wanted us to take responsibility. And if we could not learn responsibility in the garden, then the harshness of the world would have to teach us. Later with Cain, Hashem says to him, to paraphrase for, to paraphrase for clarity, if you do well, your countenance will be lifted up, and if you do not, then sin is waiting at the door. But because it desires you, you can rule it. Hashem wants Cain to take responsibility, 
The temptations of sin are there to lift up his own self-power, his own willfulness. Hashem wants kind to cultivate this aspect of the divine within himself. It might seem counterintuitive, but his ability to rise up is enabled by his own weakness. Coming back to our story, we have two men of responsibility. We have Moshe, who resists because he is a protector of the weak and of women and even of sheep. Moshe is a good and holy man before he is a leader of the people. And we have Paro. Paro is also responsible. He is in control, but his sense of self-determination is wrapped up in the service of his own pride. Paro is there to be made an example of. But what of the Egyptians, the Bnei Israel? What of those who suffer the most, who lose their crops, who go hungry? These people, these masses of people, act without responsibility. In the face of the program of enslavement, neither one resists. In the face of freedom, the Bnei Israel shrink away, and in the face of the first nine plagues, the Egyptians act in only the smallest of ways. They bring in their flocks to protect them from the hail, and that's it. So when do the plagues end? They don't end when Paro is overcome. Paro is overcome by the sixth plague. The plagues end when the passivity of the peoples ends. The Jewish people take the little action of offering the Paschal offering, of setting themselves apart from Egypt. And the Egyptian people actually push the Jewish people out. Not Paro, not the officers, the people. In the end, the Torah says that Hashem gave the Jewish people grace in the eyes of Egypt. Perhaps the Egyptians recognized that the plagues and the suffering had actually lifted them up. In that moment, they recognized that they could actually be responsible for their own lives. The Egyptians were also enslaved. The Torah makes that clear with the story of Yosef. But on the night that they pushed the Jewish people out, the Egyptian people freed themselves. In The Hidden Agent, my thriller on blessing and curse, I said that God's art lays in men's souls, or women's. But Hashem uses pain and suffering and pleasure and challenge and blessing to craft those souls. That is what I see here. We see two entire cultures lifted up through suffering. We can't understand it from within the story. Moshe can't understand it as it is happening. We can barely understand it from a distance. But that perspective, that divine perspective, is still there. Hashem can be both the God of creation and rest, of goodness and holiness, and the God of plague and death and pain. The suffering, as hard as it can be for us to conceive it, can be in the service of our souls. We have a spark of divinity, but when we allow ourselves to be guided like cattle, then we lose that spark. And Hashem is saying it is better not to have life than it is not to live. The plagues are a demonstration, but they aren't a demonstration of God's power in the service of God's pride. They are a demonstration of God's commitment to us. We might imagine we are powerless in the face of great men like Paro, but we always have the power to take responsibility. We may not understand his ways, but Hashem redeems us from the destroyers of light nonetheless. Let's go on to the political one. This, of course, has been a very interesting week politically. 
and I'm not going to directly speak to any side of the ongoing troubles. I have my opinions. But in our present reality, people stop listening if you don't say exactly what they already believe in. And I think it's important that people not stop listening. So I'll share something, and I'll let you make of it what you will. This week's reading is a lesson, among other things, on the limits of human pride. And it is a lesson, lesson on the importance of taking responsibility as individuals. Paro was a prideful man, and Hashem liberated us from him. It is our obligation to do the same today. We must take responsibility. Now, before you jump to conclusions about where I stand on present-day events, let me add one more wrinkle. Paro is never given a name. He isn't called Ramses or Amenhotep. He is just called Paro. That is because Paro isn't protecting his own pride. He is protecting the pride of his institution. The position of Paro, although it certainly morphed and changed, was almost ten times as old as the U.S. Constitution. It was almost as old as Christianity is today. On the other hand, Moshe represented no institution. He had no constituency. He was Hashem's messenger, but he didn't even support God's program. Nonetheless, he is a leader. Why? Because he wants to lift his people up. To me, the lesson is clear. In the face of prideful men or even prideful institutions, we must lift ourselves up. We exist to maximize and realize our own godly potential and the potential of others. We exist to maximize our potential for creation and for engaging with the timeless. We are not meant to be the slaves to the pride of others. We are not meant to be slaves of fear. We are not meant to be slaves of institutions. We are free, given our freedom by an almighty God. And no matter what the challenges, it is up to us to use that freedom well. Ultimately, that is what defines our souls. On to trivia. Number one, there is a genealogy in this reading, but it is a weird genealogy. It's very limited. It seems that in the face of slavery, only three of the tribes offer any resistance. Only three keep their own leaders. First are the children of Ruvain, the proudest older son. They maintain their leaders for a generation. Second are the children of Shimon, the willful destroyers of Shechem, who also survive for a generation. And third are the children of Levi, of Levi, who also helped destroy Shechem. Unlike the others, they survive to the time of Moshe and Aaron and beyond. In total, they provide five generations of leadership under slavery. This genealogy is telling us about the state of the people. Aside from Moshe, Aaron, and Aaron's sons, they have no men of note. They have no leaders. They're weak. There's another message, though. Moshe and Aaron are leaders, even though they have no followers. The route to our national survival has come through their families, because without their families, the Bnei Israel might have had no identity at all. Number two, Moshe complains that he has an aral sifataim, which we translate as uncircumcised lips. Later, the word aral is used to describe a restriction or a blockage. Our hearts have an aral, and it prevents us from serving Hashem. In Egypt, as I understand it, prophecy involves speaking the inspirations of a god without any sort of blockage. The words of the god would come freely from you. I think Moshe's aral is not his speech impediment. It is unwillingness, it is his unwillingness to speak the words of Hashem. 
Moshe has not agreed with Hashem's program, and so Aaron becomes Moshe's prophet. Even though Moshe cannot speak without reservation, Aaron can. This is both Aaron's great strength and his great weakness. After the plague of Agrov, Paro tells Moshe and Aaron that they can sacrifice to Hashem in the land. Moshe and Aaron refuse, saying they will sacrifice the Toavat of Egyptians to Hashem. If they do this, wouldn't the Egyptians stone them? In other words, they have to go outside the land in order to be safe. The word Toavat is generally translated as idol. They'll they'll offer, they'll sacrifice the idols of Egypt. But it actually means abomination. Telling Pharaoh they'll sacrifice what Moshe and Aaron think are abominations wouldn't make much sense, though. The word Toavat is is a culturally relativistic word. Yosef tells his brothers to tell Pharaoh they are shepherds because shepherds are Toavat to Egypt. Aaron Pinker, a man who is apparently far more educated than I, judging by what I read, suggests that perhaps it is the act of zevach, or of burnt offering, that is the abomination. If we move some commas around, the text can be saying exactly this. So why am I bringing it up? Because it it speaks to the same challenging dichotomy. The Egyptians apparently ate all their offerings. The gods only got that which was beyond human taste or smell. Our God instructs us to burn at least a portion of many of our offerings. In Vayikra, the Parsha, we read of all the offerings from the every man's perspective. In that perspective, only one offering, that of grain which is eaten and not burned, is called holy. The every man struggles to see the holy in what appears to be destruction. In the next reading, which has the perspective of the priests, many offerings, including those that are burnt, are called holy. The every man struggles with this idea. The priests, who are more distant from the act of creation, can more easily engage with it. Squaring these two, destruction and holiness, is the great challenge of worshipping a God who creates light and dark. I've talked a lot about structure on a macro level already. I want to focus on microstructure. I want to look at the structure of the plagues. Before we do, a very quick primer on Egyptian religion from a guy who was not an expert on Egyptian religion. The Egyptians had many gods, but unlike some other polytheistic systems, their gods didn't really have exclusive control over particular domains. There were numerous Nile gods, for example, and numerous sun gods. They seemed to arise in different towns and then mix and merge and mash up in all sorts of interesting and weird ways. Their religious system was as much about relationships between gods as their individual powers. And these relationships were very fluid, so each god has all sorts of aspects. The plagues aren't, with a few exceptions, clearly demonstrations of against particular gods. Instead, they are a demonstration of Hashem's totality. They are a demonstration of an absence of any complex relationships between the many forces the Egyptians saw. There are no relationships in the powers of the world. There is just one power. Before I step into my understanding of the plagues, there are other ways of looking at these patterns, the patterns in the plagues. One view looks at the pattern of choice and warning. Another is about the increasing distinctions made by the plagues, showing the intelligence behind them. And a third is about the historical uniqueness of the plagues. These are all valuable ways of understanding the plagues. And if you aren't familiar with them, I'd suggest you look them up. My perspective is a little different. It is driven by a desire to understand why we have these plagues in this order. The surrounding superstructure of choice, intelligence, and power is also interesting. It just isn't where I'll focus. Within my framework, the basic structure of the plagues is this. The first seven, the ones in this Parsha, define God's power in space. 
the last three in next week's Parsha define Hashem's power in time. That's a very quick intro. The plagues start in the river, below. They transition to frogs or crocodiles who come out of the river, then some lice from the dust in the ground, then our rove will get to that from just above the ground, and then a plague from the hand of God that is within the animals, literally the same plane as we live in, and then ash cast to heaven falls back to create boils, and finally we have hail from heaven. These seven plagues define God as controlling the world from the waters below to the waters above. The last three represent death in time. The locusts are driven by a ruach kadim, which can literally mean a preceding spirit. It destroys the already planted crops. It destroys the life from the past. The darkness is the experience of death in the present. We cannot move. We cannot see. It is as if we are dead. And finally, the killing of the firstborn represents the death of the future. These three plagues show the power of Hashem over time. Now on to some specifics. I'm going to be borrowing heavily from Wikipedia on my Egyptian god references. With the first plague, the Nile turns to blood. These early plagues relate to Egyptian gods. To borrow from Wikipedia, Knum, I have no idea if he's saying it correctly, possibly nobody knows if I'm saying it correctly, was one of the earliest Egyptian deities. He was originally the god of the source of the Nile. Since the annual flooding of the Nile brought with it silt and clay and its water brought life to its surroundings, Knum was thought to be the creator of the bodies of human children. By turning the water to blood, Hashem is not only establishing the baseline of his power, he is killing a central Egyptian god. Notably, he is killing the god who crafts children. This is a foreshadowing of what is to come. The second plague involves either frogs or crocodiles, depending on the translation. The word Svardea seems like a mashup of two words, Tsipor and Dea, bird and knowledge. It is an odd word to describe a creature that lives in the river but can come up on land. Interestingly, there's a pair of gods that this plague could be referring to. Sobek was a god represented as a crocodile. He was invoked as a protector against the dangers represented by the Nile. He also represented pharaonic power. He is a casualty of this plague, but he's not alone. There's another relevant god, Hecate. Hecate was represented by a frog. The frog was an ancient symbol of fertility. Her priestesses were midwives. By invading the houses of the Egyptians, the frogs represent retribution for Paro attempting to invade the houses of the Jewish women through midwives. At least according to one tradition, Hecates and Knum, gods of the first two plagues, had a child, Horus the Elder. He was a falcon whose left eye represented the sun and his right eye the moon, or maybe the other way around. His speckled feathers formed the stars and his wings created wind. Paro was seen as a manifestation of Horus the Elder turning the frog against Paro's own people and his own house, represented a betrayal of Paro by his own mother. Where Moshe was rescued by his mother, his human mother, Paro was betrayed by his divine mother. The third plague is the Kinim. Kinim can also mean foundation or base. A possible Egyptian god connection is the god Atum, who is seen as the creator god from which all the underlying substance of the world is created. He either sits on a mound that rises from the water, or he is the mound himself. He is the substance in the world and a most fundamental god. All the other gods so far have come from him. He is the first deity. What we have then is a rising crescendo of design, divine challenge. As we move from the Nile, we face a greater and greater challenge to the Egyptian pantheon. Perhaps that is why with this third plague, the Egyptian magicians see the hand of God. 
They could manipulate Kanum and Heket and Sobek. Manipulating the foundation material of Hatum was another matter altogether. No pun intended. I think the fourth plague of Arov is the last of the Egyptian god plagues. Here the reference is to the dimming of hope. Arov is translated in different ways, the two most popular being wild animals and flies, which is quite a few, quite a distinction between those two. But Arov literally means twilight. Arov is evening. It is the time in between, but specifically, it is a time of darkening. The Arov will not only fill the houses, they'll fill the ground that they are upon. This suggests not flies, but something that covers the earth everywhere. The imagery ties beautifully into one last Egyptian god, Kepri. Kepri was the god of sunrise, and Kepri was represented by the scarab beetle. The scarab pushed the sun into the morning sky. In lieu of a definitive translation, I'll translate that row of a scarab. They cover the earth, they darken the earth. Where the scarab normally represented creation and rebirth and hope, the Arov flipped this meaning and used the scarab to bring darkness and suffering. The fifth plague is even more mysterious. It is called Dever, or just Thing. Unlike the lice, this was defined as the hand of God in the Torah itself. And in this case, the hand of God was within the animals. The true power of Hashem isn't in the dust, which the Egyptians imagine. It is within life itself. This plague, of course, represents Hashem's power on our plane, the plane of animals. Next, we have the furnace thrown to heaven to produce boils when it comes back down. The rising of the location fits the pattern, but the soot is definitely odd. Why use soot as the starter for this plague? Everything in a furnace burns. What's left behind is the soot. The soot has no more energy to give. It is spent, and yet Hashem gives it power. When it lands, it creates boils, almost like it burns again. We can see another pattern here. Hashem transforms the water, makes various life forms multiply, and brings disease. This is the first plague in which he creates something from almost nothing. He reverses the order of things. Together with the fire hail, this represents a near impossibility. Finally, the cycle of power over place ends with hail. The hail is not simply hail, of course. It is a divine hail with near impossible attributes. There is fire within the ice. This Parsha ends with a hail. Perhaps the division of seven and three of place versus time is the source of this division in our readings. In either case, we'll discuss Hashem's power over time, over the past, present, and future in more detail next, next week. <clears throat> okay, answers to common questions. At the beginning of the reading, Hashem says the people will know him as yud Vavke. He then says that the forefathers didn't know him by that name, but yud Vavke is used extensively in Hashem's interactions with the forefathers. The name yud Vavke is actually a mashup for the words past, present, and future. Hashem is all that was, is, and will be. The forefathers may have known Hashem by that name, but they didn't know him by that name. They didn't understand what it meant. Number two, why does Moshe lie about only going for three days? First, there's no obligation to tell the truth to a slaver who doesn't keep his word. Traditionally, this sort of lie, though, was a way for everyone to maintain their pride. Eh, they only told me they were going for three days. What was I supposed to know they were going to leave forever? This sort of lie is a face saver. But Paro wasn't willing to lose even a little bit of his own pride. Number three, how can I say the Egyptians are enabled as a people when they lose so much at the sea? Well, when they come to the sea, they use their power in the service of enslavement. 
They act willingly. They act willfully. They are no longer slaves, but they do so in the service of robbing freedom from others. And this is why they are crushed. And number four, the most common question of all, why did Hashem harden Paro's heart? I used to think it was just the presence of Hashem that did this, that Paro's heart was hardened because he knew he was going up against Hashem. But the words used are far too active in their form. Hashem is interceding. Let's imagine if he hadn't. If Paro had broken earlier, then the totality of Hashem's power would not have been manifest. Egypt and the Bnei Israel would not have taken on their own responsibility. All that would have been established is that God is greater than Paro. And if Paro had refused to break, then even in defeat and death in the sea, he would have died with his honor intact. He would have resisted, he would have lost, but he would never have stopped resisting. And this is why Hashem had to harden his heart. Paro had to survive, but he also couldn't be allowed to lay claim to pride in the face of defeat. Conclusion, I want to leave with a quick note about the coronavirus. Given the more virulent strains which have struck populations that had earlier appeared to have acquired some kind of immunity, the case for shutdowns is stronger. More critically, given the possibility of a limited timeline for the virus, I am now in support of closure. This is no longer an open-ended problem, with a shorter-term resolution only possible through immunity. Those who die now don't need to die. We can limit the spread dramatically for a short while, and we should. In addition, I want to refer people to Trial Site News. It is a website trying to give exposure to trials all around the world. Their data on ivermectin is persuasive, and there have been many international, supports, international studies supporting its use. Just because we have a vaccine doesn't mean we should close our eyes to the possibility of cheap treatment. Finally, I'm sharing these podcasts because I want to help people realize their full potential. Whether that potential is creative, holy, or a combination of the two, it is a pity when lives go to waste. That's my goal. So if you found these ideas help you in either of these pursuits, share them. You don't have to share them in my name. Go ahead and steal them. Make them your own and carry them forward. I referenced The Hidden Agent, one of my books earlier. It is free of charge on my website, josephcox.com. It is a thriller about the nature of blessing and curse. The book is free because it really has no place in today's literary market, but I won't crowd you, cloud you with fake humility. It's a good book, and I think you'll enjoy it. Shabbat Shalom, and thank you for listening.